Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and welcome to episode 165, where we're actually going to, uh, for the second week in a row, tweak slightly the name of our show unofficially. And today it's going to be called Dear Asian Europeans. I'm talking to my friend, Simon Alexander Ong, a leadership coach, a business analyst, speaker, and author of the brand new book, Energize, on his process of going from the corporate world and banking into entrepreneurship, into being a personal brand guru, a leadership expert, and somebody who now travels the world being sought after by the highest of stages and the biggest of names uh, to talk about the importance of uh, finding energy and being an advocate for yourself mixed in with the challenges that him and I share about being a parent, managing our personal and professional lives as the lines blur. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. You can learn more about Simon Alexander Ong on his website which we'll put in the show notes. And without further ado, here now is my conversation with Simon. All right, everybody, welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. And today we're going to tweak the show name as we do from time to time and call it Dear Asian Englishman, uh, European. Um, we'll, we'll get to know our, our guest here in a little bit. I, I'm excited because uh, our, our guest, Simon uh, Alexander Ong, is, has been doing the thing that I aspire to do and so many of us want to do, which is to create a brand for ourselves, right? And I think um, so many of us, regardless of whether you were raised in the UK, um, as it is in Simon's case, or me here in America, um, you know, we were taught by our ex extremely well-intentioned parents to follow the path, right? Believe in the institutions, follow the uh, prescribed path of uh, jobs and schools, and really operating under a pretense of permission, being granted admission into some place, being granted a salary, being granted opportunities. Uh, but Simon's charted his own path. And, and he's been uh, wildly successful um, being on all the media outlets that um, from here to UK, um, he's written a new book called Energize, which we'll talk about. Um, but overall, uh, just being in business for himself and he himself is the business. And so um, I am uh, personally geeked out to learn more about him, but also learn from him as we talk um, about how he went down this uh, amazing path and, and how he uh, wants to continue to grow. So Simon, uh, thanks for joining us. Jerry, thank you so much for having me on your show. I am excited. Um, for folks who don't know you, uh, let's get to know you high level. Um, what does Simon do? Sure. So just touching on what you shared uh, just now, Jerry, I grew up very much like many uh, immigrant Asians did in the sense that I had this mistaken belief that success was defined by my job type. Be a banker, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be an accountant. And so I followed that traditional path. I went to a good high school. I then went to a good university, and I ended up following the path that led me into the financial industry. Now, unfortunately, my, my timing was a little off because I started in the middle of 2007, which was a year before the global financial crisis really started sweeping across the planet. And just to make things a little interesting, the company that I started with as a graduate was Lehman Brothers, which collapsed mm. in September 2008. And so that acted as a catalyst towards what I now get to do today, which is coaching those in positions of leadership from TV presenters to celebrities to C-level executives to entrepreneurs, speaking at some of the planet's most successful companies, the likes of Salesforce, Meta, Adobe, EY, and more recently, over the COVID pandemic, writing my very first book, Energize, with the world's largest publishing house, Penguin. That is awesome. Um, so it sounds like that decision to go off on your own, was that made for you because of economic circumstances? Or was it just you got finally got that permission to try something differently? Because hell, you know, you didn't, there weren't a lot of people, you know, hiring, which I think a lot of folks went through that same process in the pandemic, right? And uh, now as we sit here at the end of July, we're seeing it again, unfortunately, with companies downsizing and restructuring and, you know, fears of recession and, and et cetera. Um, but how did you manage that decision-making process to say, this is what I want to do? And did you go into it headfirst initially? Or was it sort of, I'm going to try it and see if it works before fully committing and letting everybody else know? Sure. I think it was, it, it was a slow process, actually. It wasn't me jumping straight out of the corporate world and going into entrepreneurship. 
But I think the catalyst really was the financial crisis. I mean, if there was no financial crisis, I, I may not be speaking with you today, Jerry. I may still be in the, in, in, in the financial industry. But what that did is it really got me questioning the beliefs that I had adopted from, from my Asian family, which is actually being in finance didn't look very attractive anymore because mm. the industry was going through big uh, changes in regulation, big changes in the way that people were remunerated, and tech was in a way becoming the new banking. Everybody now graduating wanted to go into the tech industry. And so it got me reflecting on, well, if I were to start again, what would success mean to me? And what sort of impact did I want to have in the world? And now those are simple questions, but at the same time, very deep questions. Because what I began to notice looking outside in society is that many of us are exhausted, not because we're doing too much, but because one, we're doing too little of the things that bring us joy. And number mm. two, we're often running someone else's race. And therefore, we're measuring our progress and success on metrics that are determined by people other than ourselves. And so I started to just explore, Jerry, to explore what were the things that I, were, that I was curious about. And that led me to coaching. So I enrolled on mm. a, uh, a two-day seminar, which was across a weekend. And by the end of it, I was like, this is interesting. You know, this is something I want to explore. And this was in 2012. So in 2012, I, I signed up and it took me two or so years to complete the qualifications. So I completed two qualifications with this academy. And it would then take me a couple more years before I completely exited uh, the, the, the corporate world. Now, during those couple of years, I, I felt like Superman, but without the superpowers. Uh, what I mean by that is by day, I would walk into the office, white shirt, tie and suit. And I would have in my bag my now customary black T-shirt and jeans. And so <laughs> when I had meetings to go to or events to attend after work or during lunch times, I would go into the toilet cubicle, get out of my suit, go into my black T-shirt and jeans and then go to the event or the meeting that I had scheduled in a nearby hotel. And so I was doing that for a couple of years until I had the confidence and the courage to then jump fully into doing this 24-7. Uh, and I think I needed to prove to myself at a time that I was able to do that. If I didn't have any clients, for me, it would just feel tougher. But as I started to get two, three, four clients, it gave me the courage to say to myself, maybe it's time now to dedicate 100% of my energy on making this work. That's amazing. Um, I want to better understand your mindset and your thought process, because I think one theme that is very common in your story, as it is in mine and other folks, is unlearning, but not talking down or saying that's, you know, demonizing what our parents taught us, right? Because that comes from their understanding of the world, generationally, but also culturally. And again, whether it is London or Los Angeles, when they move here, they just don't know and understand the system. And, and for folks who don't, um, I don't know, if you're under 25, like our parents had to do all this without Google, without uh, chat rooms on your phone with other moms, like they had to figure this shit on their own. And so, of course, they went to what they knew to be successful, which is trust the system, right? And and again, and I think more has been talked about, more has been uh, brought up to the surface in terms of, you know, what are systems or what were systems really built for, right? And then how we as immigrants and children of immigrants, how do we navigate that system? Because we have the pleasure of understanding the system now, right? Without being an outsider. Um, but tell us about the journey from uh, Malaysia to the UK. Um, what was your early childhood like? And um, help our um, generally American audience understand what was it like being a Chinese kid growing up in London? It, it was interesting because the school that I attended uh, from my childhood all the way through to my teenage years, I, I was very much a minority. Uh, in, in my school, I was one of maybe seven or eight Chinese, uh, and when I say Chinese, I mean Asian in general, uh, students in, in, in my school. Now, I'm not talking about just in my year, but the entire school. And, and so immediately, I was, I was in a minority. Now, there were some advantages and, and also disadvantages to that. I mean, the disadvantage is uh, it's very easy to pick on you. 
because you are a minority, you're different. The advantage is that by the time I I hit my my teenage years, during this period, I'm very thankful for Bruce Lee actually because during this period, Bruce Lee films were very popular uh, amongst my classmates, and so there was this stereotypical view that because I was Chinese, I had to know martial arts. And so I managed to avoid getting bullied in, in, in the early years of my, my teenage period because people thought if they started a fight with me, I could whack out some martial arts. So that was a very positive uh, stereotype that, that came as a result of the Bruce Lee films. But in terms of my character, because of my Asian background, I was very shy. I was very introverted. From, from a young age, uh, you know, that picture we can imagine of the, the Asian kid in the corner of the library with a stack of books and being the source of the classes copying, the source of giving everybody the answers for their homework. That was very much me uh, growing up. I would work hard. I would make sure all of my projects were handed in on time, but I wouldn't be that student who would put my hand up if uh, they were looking for a volunteer to speak in front of a class. Or they were looking for somebody to share what they were working on in front of a room of students. That wasn't me. I would sit at the back. I would just make sure I got what I needed to get done. And I didn't want to get involved in all of that socializing and public aspect of, uh, of schooling. And so that only really came uh, to the fore when I was transitioning out of the corporate world and, and into the entrepreneur path. Because I realized that if I couldn't communicate what I was doing, and the value that I could bring, my business wouldn't last long. And so something that I didn't have when I was young suddenly became a skill that was necessary in order to succeed and thrive in the business world. That's fascinating. I mean, it, it sounds like you channeled those experiences. Because um, I do think, I, I fundamentally believe, and it doesn't matter what country and where, from where to where, but when you're an immigrant refugee adoptee, you know, if you exist in a world that um, is new to you, uh, the perspective that we gain and or the perspectives that we are able to see situations, challenges, problems is innately double at a minimum, right? Because I think, you know, we walk into a situation, you and me and go, okay, so as a human being, I see this one way. But as an immigrant or as an Asian person, you know, uh, building on the lessons and the things that we were taught by our parents and community and society, we might be able to see that a little bit differently and saying, hey, we might be, you know, we might be, uh, you know, being privy to a, a blind spot here or something. Um, and, and so I, I think we or people who live uh, with more than just one identity um, in a you know society that is, uh, to be frank, I'm sure it's um, not, to, I'm sure I'm. 100% sure. Like, you know, the business world and uh, the people who are regarded as the experts even in our fields don't look like me and you, right? And, and and so I'm a big believer in context, right? Because the the notion that uh, there's one universal truth or even one universal level of like business advice, it doesn't make any sense because if that were true, the people who would be sitting on these uh, bestseller lists or people who the wealthiest people in the world wouldn't look like the way they do. Um it would for you know it would better reflect the diversity of the global population which means that you know there's 4 billion of us right but like are we more than half of these things and so i appreciate your story simon because i, I we need to go through some of these things to help us realize what is the gap and how we can fill it um even though you know we again because this is the way we were taught uh we did both go down this path of let me try this corporate thing and see how it works only to realize for 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 you, it seems like, you know, sure, the situation helped maybe expedite the process, but the realization that, hey, this isn't for me, and that's okay. Um, many of us go through that same, same situation, but try harder, right? Like you ram against the wall even harder, instead of trying to go around the wall, or trying to climb a different wall, and, and that doesn't work. Um, and so take us through, uh, you, you started doing this, um, you know, in 2007, it sounds like, um, or take me through the timeline. I, I started in the financial industry in 2007. And yeah. I was looking for another job in, in the middle of 2008 when, when Lehman collapsed. And I was in and out of the financial industry uh, for, for nearly 10 years. So I fully exited that, that world in, in 2017 to fully work for myself. Mm. And so even in the grand scheme of it, I mean, it's been 
five to six years since I've left employment. It's a short space of time, but it feels a lot longer because, of course, it's something that consumes you 24-7. And <laughs> even in those short five to six years, the growth has been very fast. But it's also because I think one of the differences that I had compared to when I was doing this as a side hustle, when I was still in my nine to five, is that once I broke out of that, I knew there was no safety net. I knew that the mm -hmm. only way was forward and I had to channel my energy into making that work. That is scary. That, that's not easy. That challenges us mentally. But if we can survive those early years, if we can overcome the obstacles, the setbacks and the challenges, that equips us with the resilience to deal with whatever the world throws our way. I mean, when COVID struck, because I had gone through the experience of the financial recession, I've gone through the experience of starting a business in which nobody in my immediate family had ever started a business before. Because I'd gone through those challenges already, when COVID struck, I was able to respond very calmly. I was able to respond in a way that was healthy, not just for me, but also my family, because we, my, my, my wife and I became parents for the first time. We could probably talk about dad life for a whole different hour. Um... But how has that changed the way you view, one, the world and, and your work? Very, uh, very differently. I think that anybody who has become a parent uh, can certainly relate to this. I, I mean, first of all, it was very surreal to become a parent at the very moment that the United Kingdom went into its first national lockdown. My wife and I were kind of planning the, uh, the route to the hospital because we had a, a planned C-section operation. And so we were planning the route. We were looking on Google Maps and it calculated that it would take us around uh, 50 minutes to 70 minutes traffic dependent. And so we were kind of mentally preparing for that and factoring in the timings for that journey. And then COVID struck and everyone had to stay at home. And so the road suddenly became empty. And what was meant to be a 50 to 70 minute journey to the hospital became a 25 minute journey because the roads were just empty. And so we got there and it was a very uh, interesting experience, to say the least, because as a partner to my wife, I was only allowed in the operating theater for the delivery of our child and for an hour in the recovery ward after our daughter was delivered. Now, when I, when I held my daughter in my arms for the first time, uh, not only was I flush with love and emotion for this being that we had created, but I was reminded uh, about something that we as humans tend to forget very quickly, which is we are a miracle. You know, we're a miracle. I mean, the fact that we were born, the fact that you and I are having this conversation right now is an absolute miracle. We've won the greatest lottery ticket there is going, the lottery of life. And it reminded me of how important that fact is, because many of us are filling in the tickets for the regional or the national lotteries forgetting that we have already won that ticket, that greatest lottery ticket going. And the question we've got to keep asking ourselves is, what are we doing with that winning ticket of ours? And so that was what I was reminded of in the process of becoming a parent for the first time. And that's what changed me as a person. Uh, you know, before I was doing things for myself, I was doing things for my wife and I. But once you become a parent, I think your focus moves away from doing things for yourself to doing things that are part of your legacy, because our children are our legacy. And so that gave me greater, deeper motivation to make the most of what I had in front of me, to create a life that my daughter and maybe other children in the future can enjoy. I mean, I, I talked about Bruce Lee earlier in this conversation, but there was one quote that I always remember when I when I talk about families, is a Bruce Lee quote that says, do not buy your children the things that you didn't have. Teach them the lessons that you were never taught. What is the number one lesson you want to teach your kid that you didn't learn? The number one lesson that I would love to teach my kid is to listen to your heart. Listen to what that tells you. Because while it won't always lead you to where you want to be, it will always lead you to where you need to be. That is why the saying that goes, the longest journey we make as humans are the inches from our heads to our hearts, 
That's the reason why. We often suppress what our heart tells us for the validation from other people, whether that's parents, society, or family. And so my simplest advice and lesson to my child would be listen to your heart and be open to following what it tells you and what you're curious about. And I think the work that you're doing um, gives your kid uh, collectively a lot of other immigrant kids in the UK and more globally um, the privilege to be able to have more options, right? And I think that's the wonderful thing that um, is, I think, one of the coolest things that we get to do. Um, you know, when we think about building a better life for our kids, like people think about uh, just tactical opportunity, which is rooted in financial, you know, uh, blessings, right? So like better clothes, better school, better toys, activities that we couldn't go to as kids because our parents couldn't afford it. Now we can and, and all these different things. But ultimately, um, when we, when we look at this from the perspective of why did our parents tell us to go to the best schools and get the best grades and get the best jobs, it was because there was a lack of choice, um, in the opportunities and through even just showing them that here we are, uh, two Asian guys, who speak for a living, like that doesn't compute with our parents, right? Like there was a period of time where I don't think my parents understood how I made money. Um, and, you know, <laughs> uh, but, you know, they were just like, we trust you to do what you think is rest, you know, what, what best for your family. And so, um, but this idea and this new technology that allows us to, you know, what the hell is a podcast, right? Like, what is, what do you mean? You know, and, and I think there are like traditional things that make sense for them, right? Like you wrote a book and they can go see the book and it's in paper and like, it makes sense. Um, but I think the effect of giving our children more opportunity through choice, not just financial, cho I guess, choices that are allowed by financial, uh, blessings, but also to be able to give them the dream that they can see dad and mom and uncle and other people in our spheres do crazy stuff, right? Like, um, we were connected through a mutual friend, Laura Huang. She's a professor at Harvard. Like that doesn't, you know, like that. You know, generally speaking, our parents' generation, how many of them had a friend that taught at Harvard that they could email, call, or text and be like, hey, what do you think about this? Right? That's That gives us privilege, right? Because then we're able to point to her and other friends and saying, like, that's doable because she did it. And not only is it doable, she can probably teach you the lessons that she's learned along the way and publicly through her book, you know, and other stuff, but just even being in you know, community with each other. And so I, I think that is the most wonderful thing. Um, you said you wrote the book through the pandemic. Was that sparked by having more opportunity? Um, I think all of us, uh, me too, we want to write a book. Writing a book is like always on everybody's list of things I really want to do, especially if you have the gift of having your own brand or like you have a lot of good things to say. And it's just a matter of like, I've been saying a lot of stuff for a few years. Like, can we organize these thoughts and put it on paper and Maybe somebody will buy it. Um, it's it's an amazing journey of you know uh, perseverance and discipline, and to put everything uh, down. How how was that journey for you? And um, I guess before, tell us about the the spark, and then how you ended on the topic of energy, and and why you wanted that to be uh, your first book that you write. Sure. So I'll, I'll talk about the writing process, and then I'll jump back to the uh, the origin of the book. So. I want to be honest with you, Jerry, the process of writing the book has been one of the most challenging things I have ever done. Now, not challenging in the sense that writing a book uh, is an activity I've never done, but challenging in the sense that there was almost a perfect storm that came together that made the process of writing that much more difficult. Mm. Because just, just to share with you the timeline. April 2020, the United Kingdom enters its first lockdown. Seven days later, my wife and I become new parents. And then in May 2020, just a few weeks later, I get the offer to write a 65,000 word book. So now, <laughs> just bring all of that together for a moment. I have to write this book while taking care of a newborn and now having to also adapt to my business because the world has gone into lockdown. And a big part of my revenue comes from speaking in person. Now, as you know, when things lock down, you can't hold any events. All the events that you were booked to speak at has now been canceled. 
And so you've got to adapt how you do business in a world that has now essentially faced one of its biggest challenges. And so bringing all of that together did make the experience a lot tougher than I had mentally expected. I mean, for starters, we were looking forward for having my wife's family come over from New York and my own family come over from Asia. But immediately they had to cancel their trips. And so we had to adapt, not just professionally, but also personally, in order to give me the space and the time to complete this project. Now, in terms of the birth of the book and the idea, I didn't, I didn't plan to write a book. In the same way, I didn't plan to speak on stages. It's just that things came together in a very for, fortuitous way. Uh, I, I was approached towards the end of 2019 by a boutique publishing house who had been following me on social media. And they said, Simon, would you be interested in writing a book with us? Now, after having that meeting and looking through their proposal, I decided that it wasn't for me. But I was then motivated, taking that as a sign, Jerry, I was motivated to reach out to some of the biggest publishing houses in the world. And so that process took uh, a couple of months in terms of sending emails, building the relationships, going to events, and just connecting with these people in person. And I didn't hear anything until January 2020. And that was when I started to have meetings with these publishers. And when it got to the question of Simon, what would be the topic that you would like to write about? Energy became the number one thing that I wanted to focus on. Now, the working title that I proposed was Energy is Everything. Now, during the editing process, that eventually became Energized. And the reason is, is I, I noticed that if you didn't have the energy now, when I talk about energy, I mean physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional. If you didn't have the energy each day to show up in the way you would like, it doesn't matter what tip or trick or hack somebody gives you, you just won't have the motivation to apply it. And so I really wanted to speak to that. And also because every time I came down from stage, Jerry, I would often have people come up to me from the audience and say, Simon, I loved your energy. It was infectious. If only I had just a small percentage of your energy I could go on and accomplish so much. And so again, I wanted to speak into that. How did I get into a position in which I was now waking up full of energy, thinking possibilities over limitations and thinking resourcefulness over lack of resources? And so I wanted to detail my journey, but also share some of the wisdom that I had accumulated along the way. Where did you get your energy from? For me, the beginning of my journey in terms of being energized came from fitness. Um, I, I had gone through this period in the corporate world in which I was burnt out multiple times. As you, as you know, the hours in finance is long. You know, I was often in the office around six or seven in the morning. I wouldn't be out until maybe 10 at night. Maybe later if there was a client entertainment event. And so because I'd gone through this period of being burnt out, I understood that the first area I had to address when it came to energy was my own physical health. And so once I started to adopt this consistency in exercising and moving my body, that just started to unlock all these other areas. You know, once I was moving my body and exercising on a regular basis, that inspired me to want to eat better. When I was eating better, I wanted to drink less. And suddenly it had this huge domino effect on all the other areas of my life from my health, to my career, to my lifestyle, and so on. And how do you sustain that, right? Because I think there's, when somebody says, you're full of energy, if I had, you know, we're, we're talking energy, but also charisma. We're also talking things that we can learn as speakers or and as communicators. There are, you know, things that you can train yourself on. Um, is there a way... Uh, for 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 hooks, I mean, one number one, read the book uh, and, and learn. But as they're listening to this, you know, um, it, it, can that be taught, right? Or is that because we we talk? So I guess what I'm trying to say is when when we feel somebody's energy or charisma, we tend to believe like, man, like some people are born that way, right? Like if you're extroverted, if you have a personality, and and a lot of people say, well, that's not me, right? I'm quiet, I'm docile, I you know, I'm introverted, and a lot of folks in our community, actually, you know, even more so, right? Because um, when we talk on a stage or when we talk about ourselves, there's a very fine line between 
speaking your truth and being called somebody who's a braggart, right? And um, we don't self-advocate very well um, in, in many, many Asian cultures, right? And so how do you coach somebody or what, how would you answer the question of, you know, it seems like something you were born with, something that is a natural gift to you. Uh, can that be taught for somebody who doesn't see themselves harnessing that really extrovert of power energy? Definitely. It's something that can be taught, but it's action that the individual must take themselves. So, you know, I've spoken about the physical aspect of energy. You know, the simplest thing is if you want energy, get your body moving. Uh, and that gets the blood pumping, that gets you feeling more energized. Now, there's another part to thinking about energy, which is what I call spiritual energy. Now, when you are low on spiritual energy, there exists a tension between what you are currently doing in terms of your work and what you actually want to do. Mm. Because when the two aren't aligned, then there's going to be natural tension. I mean, you just have to look at a recent poll by Gallup in which it shared that just 18% of the American workforce feel engaged with the work that they do in corporate America. Now, that tells us that the majority of people do not feel that the work they're doing is aligned to what they want to do. It isn't something that makes them feel happy. It isn't something that makes their heart sing. And so if we take the example of speaking on stage, if you're talking about something or representing uh, a company or organization that you don't see yourself in in the future because your heart yearns for something else, then people feel that energy. People can feel that. But when you are doing work that makes you feel alive, when you're doing work that leverages your strengths and that you would want to dedicate hours to master, what mm. happens is the energy comes across so different. The energy comes across vastly different and we can feel it. You know, just to tap into popular culture, in Star Wars, you might call it the force. In yoga, you might call it prana. In Chinese culture, you might call it chi. Now, whatever we're talking about, it's the exact same thing, which is energy as a life force. When you're aligned with who you truly are and you are expressing yourself in the most beautiful of ways because it is allowing you to share your talents and gifts, people can feel that energy. However, when you're not, and you're not doing something that is aligned to who you are and what you want to do, again, people can feel that energy. You know, it's like when you go to a hospitality service, like a restaurant or a hotel, you know immediately if somebody enjoys what they do or they don't by the way they interact with you. And that is energy in motion. You've been now at this point in your life have coached people uh, whose names you might recognize, whose names you might not be able to share. If we look at uh, the back flap of your book and the people who have, uh, you know, given you praise for your book, uh, these are, you know, uh, household names, uh, you know, in particularly in uh, psychology world and business leadership world, you know, people like Simon Sinek and Marie Forleo. Um, people see you now. And you are a, an author and, you know, uh, they can only imagine what they have to pay to hear you speak, you know, and, and people often see that where they are. And there's this huge chasm of doubt, fear, and how do I get there, right? There's a little bit of, I think, you know, slight jealousy and, you know, must be nice. Well, well, you weren't there when we had to speak for free and like pave our own way to, you know, just to get the reps um, and in hindsight of, you know, and you're not certainly done yet, Simon, but at, at this point where, you know, you're celebrating a book and you have this moment of, you know, uh, being a dad and coming out of a pandemic, all this sort of reflection point. Um, what is the most valuable lesson you've learned that has kept you going uh, through the tough times? Very few people start a coaching career, speaking career, or a workshop, leadership, anything career, and go from nobody knows who I am to, you know, being paid handsomely to go lead workshops or do one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, it takes reputation, it takes repetition, and it takes being good, frankly. Um, and not everybody makes it. And, you know, uh, objectively speaking, you've, uh, you know, checked off many boxes and then have achieved success here. What would you attribute that to? And, and what, did you, what have you learned along the way that you want to teach others? Definitely. I, I think 
you shared some great thoughts there, Jerry, especially on the fact that we can be seduced by the glamour of the results. You know, uh, for example, Simon's got Simon Sinek, Marie Folia, he's speaking at this company, that company, he's traveling to this country. But what we are blind to is what goes on behind the scenes. As you said, the years of hard work, the moments when you had to do things for free just to get some exposure, the moments when, you, you know, you have to play with uncertainty without any guaranteed form of return. And so looking back, I think the two lessons which really helped me in this particular journey and are still helping me today is one, pure love for the work I do. You know, I really enjoy speaking on stage, coaching people, mentoring those in the early part of their own entrepreneurial journey and consulting companies uh, with the insights that I've learned on, on my path. And so if you enjoy what you do, you want to get better at it. You know, you want to learn from people ahead of you. And so having the opportunity to work with New York Times bestselling authors who have mentored me or uh, working with people who are speaking at far bigger stages than I am, that doesn't just excite me, but it shows me how much more there is to learn. Now, if you're interested and you love the process, guess what? You have this first to just constantly want to master the work that you're doing. If it isn't something that you truly enjoy, guess what? When the going gets tough, you're going to give up. And that doesn't just apply to my business and coaching and speaking, but it applies to any industry. You're going to give up at the first hurdle that comes your way, and there are going to be hurdles. The second thing that has really helped me and is a lesson that I share with a lot of young business owners is I have enjoyed just getting to know people from very diverse networks. You know, I've always enjoyed every week, mm. who can I get to know that I don't know yet? Um, I'm always looking to experiment, whether it's trying new social platforms, attend a seminar, attend an event, uh, add value to my network. Maybe they'll introduce me to someone in their network and so on. Because for me, the beauty in building a business comes in every conversation. When you get to know others at a deeper level, not only do you get to know how you can add value to them and their own journey, but they can get to know how to add value to you. And so if it wasn't for the relationship building, if it wasn't for cultivating my network, I would never have come across Simon Sinek's radar. I would never have come across Marie Folio's radar. I would never have come across your radar, Jerry, or Laura's radar and so on. And so because I've had this enjoyment of just getting to know people and expanding my network because I can learn from them, but also maybe I can help them. That has helped me to fast track uh, my my journey in coaching and my journey in speaking and my journey in writing because of my love of wanting to build and cultivate my network. I think that's wonderful. Um, and, and, you know, I sometimes not struggle, but think about our unique ability uh, to resonate with specific audiences that look like us or have a shared story, right? And at the same time, as it in your case, because you are rubbing shoulders and your name is being spoken in the same sentence and on the same stages with people who are objectively just the top of their craft. And, you know, same thing with Laura. I mean, she's not, she's just a simply a Harvard Business School professor, right? Like her, her identity and her gender make her extra awesome. And how do you view that? Because I think there's certain things that we can bring to the table. So for example, if you, uh, you might uh, be surprised to find, maybe not, probably not, that there might be a lot more younger Asian men who follow your content on social, especially because you can say the same thing. And perhaps somebody else who is not of your background can say the same exact thing. It just hits different, right? Because there's a sense of Simon knows a little bit of being the outside guy, right? You talked about, you know, um, being bullied and being an outsider and, you know, having to, you know, work through some of those challenges. And um, until we're all doing our part to make sure that our kids perhaps don't experience hate and racism in those same ways. But um, how do you see yourself having been, uh, how does that influence some of the content that you uh, speak on and write about perhaps? And, um, and how do you see yourself impacting just that small demographic? Again, I, I, I share this question and, ask for your thoughts on this, Simon, because there are times where, so for example, I stepped away from the corporate world and I could have done, you know, I didn't necessarily need to start a very specific Asian American platform, but at least in America, we just don't simply have very many of these where we can talk about how awesome everybody is 
within the context of our culture and community. However, uh, I also know that my podcast, speaking to Asian Americans about Asian Americans, isn't going to rank number one next to, you know, uh, the Tim Ferriss or whatever, you know, mainstream shows. And I think both are, you know, both are, they're they're not mutually exclusive business strategies. Um, But I'm curious to get your take on it. Because uh, even when I share just regular business stuff on LinkedIn, the people who engage generally look like me and you. And, you know, we, we get, you know, we get comments or, you know, when we speak on a, on a very diverse audience, the, the folks that come up to you and say, thank you, you know, the, the ones that say, hey, this is the first time I saw a Chinese person, a Korean person, you know, speak on this sort of environment. And, you know, your content was badass, but like you saying it made it extra special. Um, th- tell me about sort of your thought process on context, context versus content in, in the way you deliver. I, I feel you on this, Jerry, because when I wrote the book, for me, it was just a way to share my work and to share my insights with the world. But I didn't anticipate the reception that it would get from my very own demographic. So I, I have got so many messages from Asian people here in the UK that have told me they've gone to the bookstore, they've gone to the self-development, the self-help section. And it was impressive to see that there is someone from an Asian origin who has written a book alongside some of the more established names in our industry. And they said it was very inspiring because they've grown up in a world in which many people from our culture have only gone down the traditional routes of of careers in very traditional roles. And to have someone who's doing very much a public-facing role, writing books, speaking, coaching, it was very inspirational for them to know that there is different paths that we can take. And it's something that I've been intentionally tapping into now that I've seen the response that has gone. Uh, just to give an example, Jerry, in September here in the UK, there's a British Chinese society that is hosting a book event. And they've invited me and two other authors who are also Asian to talk about our books and, and the journey that we've been on to an audience of people that look like us as a way of showing them that there is actually other paths that we can embark on. And so for me, while the content is to just help people generally, I'm also very conscious that the people that will follow, listen, and that will have a greater impact on them will be people from my background. And so since the book has come out, I've been deliberately doing a bit more work uh, with those communities uh, in, in which have a lot of members that come from my background, Chinese, Asian, and so on. And even you, know, you being in America, Jerry, I've had one or two conversations with Goldhouse. And just to understand the work they're doing in raising awareness about AAPI communities. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's odd because it, to me, it sometimes feels like, you know, my content, and I, I think I fall into the same trap, right? Like my content universally should be good, right? But at the same time, I think about why I started to believe these things, right? And so folks can't see, but Simon can see behind me is a giant bookcase of a whole lot of book, you know, business leadership, you know, uh, self-help, psychology, all these books that, you know, you and I probably have read, you know, and then the podcast that I used to listen to, right? None of them, very few of them uh, looked like me or had the same perspective of where I've come from. And what I started to notice was that when their advice didn't work, because they say, as they always do, this works for everybody, right? But that's how they sell books, right? Um, they, you know, follow these three things, you know, but, um, and it didn't work. And I don't, you know, and, and the reason why it doesn't work is because we have to unlearn some of these things. We have to shift our paradigm and, you know, the way that we value our, our duty to our parents still, even though we disagree on career choice, the way that we have to think about, you know, um, more maybe culturally to generalize, we're more, you know, a collective minded rather than individualistic. And, you know, it's not a super, uh, you know, capitalistic screw everybody sort of mindset that we can get away with at times. And so, you know, I am so excited that you are one of many, many awesome voices in this moment now, uh, where we are still being objectively at the highest levels because that's the thing right like 
we have to be extra good, right? Like, and it's, and I hate to say that, but like, you know, there's not a lot of room for mediocre Asians, right? Because the, the opportunities that we get and we don't, I don't want to feel like we have to represent the entire continent, but um, it helps when you can shine on your own merit and, you know, indicators like the people that, you, you know, where you speak and the conferences, the people that you hang out with, the fact that Penguin published your book and that you're being invited to all these, you know, things, those are validators, not to you, but the fact that other people can then say, hey, I can walk away from a career in finance or even now, like, don't even go into one, right? Like, how, 90% of the things that college kids want to do today didn't exist when you and I were there, right? And so in this ever-changing world, at least they can say, like, hey, like, I think you know, there's something that I can learn just from observing and from engaging with Simon to say, what does a career look like for me? Because I have a lot to say, or in my industry, there's nobody that looks like me. And perhaps there are things that I can learn uh, to harness that energy where I don't feel like I have to pretend, um, but that I can just simply belong. In. And that's where I think, you know, uh, what you're doing is, is so wonderful, because people read your book, because it's good. But then the people who resonate with you culturally will read the same book, and it it, it, it hits so different. Right? I, I couldn't because... agree with you more, Jerry, because I think what I've noticed is that people from my background, not only do they read the book and they say it's good, but they read the book with the context of knowing and relating to the journey that I've been on. You know, when they read the part about, you know, how challenging it was for me to share what I was doing with my family, they can probably be related to that. You know, the, the moment when I had to tell my family that I'd just given up a well-paying job that gave me security of income, a pension, benefits, a bonus, for a career in which I have no idea what I'm going to get paid month to month, because that's how business works. You know, you can't always predict what your cash flow is going to be like. And the only person that understands that is you because nobody else knows what's going on in your mind. So I think it's interesting because they also look at the context of where that author has come, knowing the fact that they share the same background. Yeah. And, and then you become, then we normalize this, right? So in our generation, and, and this is how we grow, right? And so being a public speaker, being an author and being very successful at it becomes and, and hopefully we expand, you know, the, the stereotypical list of approved jobs for Asian parents, right? Like that should be on there, right? And, and because the world is changing and, you know, certainly no shade at all to the people who find comfort and safety and happiness doing traditional jobs. We need y'all, right? We need people in the organizations to affect change because what if everybody left? Then the organization would not be diverse at all. And that's what we're sort of trying to solve. And so we need people there but for people who were never intended to be there, we, you, all of us, hopefully, are giving them the nudge to say, hey, focus on the message, but also see what I'm doing, right? And, and learn from the path that I've taken in addition to the content. And so um, this is so wonderful. And, and, you know, shout out to technology for letting us, you know, talk and record where we're, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of miles apart. In, in different time zones and, and for us to be able to connect and to share. Um, you know, I too have adopted the, I will wear a black shirt to everything, especially in zoom land. Um, and so much so that I, I wore a white shirt to a meeting one day and my friend was like, what's wrong with you? Uh, <laughs> what happened? Are you, are you going through something? Um, and so, I like um, it, Jerry. I, it reminds me of, uh, of, of when I was invited to uh, 10 Downing street, which is the prime minister's office mm. here in the UK. So I was invited there to talk about business with the Minister of Business for, for the United Kingdom. And there's a dress code that you have to wear when you go to a government building. You know, you have to wear a suit yeah. and, and a tie. And so I remember when I got a photo taken coming out of the uh, Prime Minister's office and I shared it on social media. And a lot of the comments were really funny because a lot of the comments were like, Simon, you look good in a suit. I haven't seen you in a suit for years. It's always black <laughs> t-shirt and jeans. <laughs> Which, I mean, which also sort of, you know, we are able to adapt to situations, right? And so, you know, we're not like black t-shirt jeans everywhere, right? And, and, you know, I think you have to respect certain institutions and stuff. Um, as we wrap, one final question. So, you know, our show is called Dear Asian Americans. And uh, for, for this episode, we'll tweak it to Dear Asian Europeans or um, however folks identify in the audience. Um, 
we started this show in the form of a love letter to us from us, uh, sharing life lessons and inspirational moments and, and thoughts that we didn't have growing up, as I think has been a, a theme for much of our conversation. And, and so leave us with your final thoughts, uh, perhaps a letter to a younger version of Simon, a letter to your child or you know other younger folks coming up in uh, in the UK and beyond that uh, might be going through you know difficult challenges now as we are in the uh, the midst of a lot of uncertainty with COVID, with the economy and um, ever changing world. And so uh, Simon, help us close out the show and complete the letter, dear Asian Europeans. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to base it on my life experience, uh, and I'm sure some of you can relate. I went through a lot of challenges uh, when I was young and even in the early part of my career. I I lost my mom when I was 17 years old to a tragic accident. I ended up working for a company that went bankrupt after 14 months uh, of joining. My first business idea that I entered, which wasn't to do with what I do today, didn't work out. But if there's anything I've learned from those experiences is that your most painful moments, your darkest periods, they equip you with the very things that help you create the best moments in your life. They can, if you have the humility, become your greatest teachers. They are temporary, yet they serve a purpose that you may not understand in the moment, but you will do with the passage of time. Thank you so much for making time. Uh, this has been wonderful. Um, congratulations on all your success. Uh, most important being, you know, father and sort of trying to figure out what what that means. And uh, particularly as the world opens up and stages open up again, um, I genuinely hope that we can cross paths uh, in person very, very soon. And again, big, big shout out to our friend, Laurel Hong, uh, for connecting us and for making this possible. Uh, Energize is the book that you can get from Simon. Um, Energize subtitle being make the most of every moment. Um, so uh, buy it, read it, download it, listen to it, however you can get your hands on it. Uh, Simon, thanks for all you do. And thanks for making time for this today. Jerry, thank you so much. And keep up the great work that you're doing. Thanks. Thanks so much to Simon for making this conversation happen. A big, big shout out to our mutual friend, uh, Laura Wong, for making the conversation. So always excited to talk to other fellow practitioners in the speaker, uh, writer, coach space um, as we navigate what it means to be us and what it means to be uh, dads and, and teaching what uh, our, our kids are capable of doing. And so big shout out to Simon. Uh, you can learn more about Simon at simonalexanderong.com or at Simon Alexander O on Instagram. Same thing on Twitter, at Simon Alexander O. You can find me at jerrywan.com on LinkedIn. Just search jerrywan, W-O-N. And on Instagram, you can find me at jerryjwan. Big shout out to Simon again for making this interview possible. Go check out his book, Energize. Would love to hear what you thought of the book. Email us at hello at dearasianamericans.com or jerry at jerrywan.com if you want to send us a note. As we go into the fall, into football season, into school season for the parents out there, or if you're going to school yourself, wishing you all the best of luck, health, safety, and most importantly, happiness. I'm your host, Jerry Wan of the Ears of the Americans, and I'll see you next time.